You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today's episode is the final chapter in The Race Around the World by journalist Nellie Bly. Last time we left our hero, 25-year-old Nellie Bly, on a steamship bound for San Francisco. Bly had boarded the ship in Japan. She was racing to America, where she would then take a train to New York, and in doing so, beat Phileas Fogg from the novel Around the World in 80 Days. The chief engineer of Bly's ship, William Allen had vowed to help Bly win her race, even writing on the ship's engines, quote, For Nellie Bly will win or die. End quote. Bly's journey had captured the attention of not just the nation, but the world, and around the globe, newspapers were keeping tabs on her progress. However, Bly was being challenged by Elizabeth Bislin, a reporter with the newspaper Cosmopolitan. So, as Bly was sailing across the Pacific, Bislin would arrive in Brindisi, Italy on january sixteenth, eighteen ninety. And with that, I want to start today's episode with Bislin, as a lot is going to happen to her while Nellie Bly was heading for San Francisco on a steamship. And the action on a steamship heading across the Pacific is not particularly exciting, unless you count people wanting to sacrifice Bly's monkey, McGinty, to placate the weather gods, which really did happen, but we'll get there in a bit. Instead, let us follow Elizabeth Bisland. The 28-year-old Bislin had arrived in Brindisi just in time to catch the train north, toward Calais, France. The train was scheduled to leave in less than an hour. It was the same mail train that Bly had traveled on several weeks earlier. While her bags were taken care of, Bislin went to the telegraph office to send a message to her paper in New York. When that was taken care of, she headed to the train station, arriving just ten minutes before its scheduled departure. Here, she was horrified to find that her baggage was not there. In fact, it was still on her steamship, Britannia. Unlike Nellie Bly, Bislin had many bags and had acquired countless items during her travels, including silk gowns from Japan. Bislin raced to her ship and found her bags were waiting to be inspected by Italian customs officials. She was forced to unpack, then repack her bags, before rushing back to the train. She was late, and she knew it. Disaster could have struck Elizabeth Bislin at that moment, but her luck held, as the India mail train to Calais had not departed as scheduled. Bislin would, miraculously, make it on board, along with all of her baggage, before the train departed Brindisi for France. So, with things going well, Bislin headed north. Her plan was to transfer to another train just outside of Paris, and then head toward Le Havre, about 120 miles southwest of Calais on the English Channel. There, a steamship, La Champagne, was set to sail to New York. If all went well, 
Bislin would reach her final destination on January 25th. Even she understood that things were tight at this point. She likely knew Bly's schedule, which was to arrive in the United States on January 22nd, then take a train across the country, arriving in New York on January 25th. The race was not going to be decided by days, but by hours, maybe even minutes. But as Bislin headed north, she quickly ran into trouble. The mail train had left Brindisi late, which had been a blessing as she had made her connection. But now it was a curse, as it was behind schedule. The fear was that she would miss her connection to Le Havre, and thus miss her ship. Bislin's newspaper, Cosmopolitan, quickly went into action to avert a tragedy. They made an agreement to have a private locomotive take Bislin to Le Havre to meet the steamship. However, even then, it appeared that she would arrive an hour after the ship's scheduled departure. Ultimately, she needed the ship to wait a short bit, and she would make it. To that end, Cosmopolitan's owner, John Brisbane Walker, agreed to pay the French line, which was the company that owned La Champagne, $2,000 to delay departure. That was a great plan, but things were not that simple. When Bislin reached the connection station at Villeneuve, a Paris suburb, she received bad news. She was met by a man from Cook & Son, one of the first and biggest travel companies in the world. There she was told that the deal was off. Her ship was not going to delay her departure. She was told that La Champagne was a mail ship, and the mail had a schedule to keep. Thus, the French government had stepped in and said no to any delay. Upon hearing the news, Bislin rushed back to the India mail train and reboarded. She had an alternative route established, and she decided to take it. She would continue north to Calais, then cross over to England. A steamship was scheduled to depart Southampton on January 19th and set to arrive in New York on January 27th. It was a gamble, but Bislin took it. It would still give her a chance to beat Bly, who would have to deal with the unpredictable weather in the American West. So north to Calais, and then England, Bislin went. Now, I want to stop and take a step back, because something weird had happened. Elizabeth Bislin had been told outside of Paris that her steamship in Le Havre would depart without her. This forced her to go to her backup plan. However, La Champagne did wait for Bislin. The steamship delayed its departure for three hours, and when Bislin did not show, the ship set sail. Now, some people claim that the New York world was behind the diversion of Bislin, a dirty trick to help their reporter win their race. Others believe the story was true. La Champagne had been ordered to leave as scheduled, but she had waited anyhow, perhaps per the original agreement with John Brisbane Walker. In the end, we really don't know, but the speculation is sort of fun. No matter, Bislin headed north. When she reached England, she would find herself with more problems. The steamship from Southampton she wanted to sail on was delayed and would not depart for another week. She would be forced to resort to Plan C, or D, or whatever version she was on now. No matter what, she was desperate. Bislin would take a train to Wales, then a ferry to Ireland. She would then take a train to Cove in southwest Ireland, where she took passage on a ship named Bothnia. It was, however, a slow ship, and Bislin knew her chances of winning the race were severely diminished. But who knows? She had to count on Bly running into problems of her own. Perhaps storms would delay her across in the Pacific, or maybe the snow would block her in the American West. No matter, Elizabeth Bislin was on the final leg of her round-the-world journey, a slow trek across the Atlantic bound for New York City. So, as Bislin plodded westward across the Atlantic, Nellie Bly did likewise, only easterly and across the Pacific and her ship, the Oceanic, did not plod. She was a first-rate vessel, and, most importantly, fast. Departing Japan on January 7th, Oceanic had a good start, but the weather quickly turned bad. For four days, the ship battled storms, which Bly was told were the worst the ship had ever encountered. 
Some of the crew suggested that her monkey was bad luck, and they wanted it thrown overboard. Bly would reject the notion of sacrificing McGindy to the gods of the sea, and the ship would continue to fight its way east, and eventually the storm subsided. The voyage across the Pacific gave Bly ample time to ponder her journey, and she was appalled at the idea of losing the race to Elizabeth Bisland. She would say, quote, I would rather go in dead and successful than alive and behind time, end quote. Despite the storms, Oceanic would arrive in San Francisco on January 21st, a day ahead of schedule. Now, you would think that Bly had the race sewn up at this point, but Mother Nature isn't so accommodating. The great fear that Bly and her paper had was with the winter weather in the western United States, and they were right to be concerned, because just as Bly returned to the United States, a massive snowstorm was pummeling the Rocky Mountain region. Seven feet of snow had fallen in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and there were reports of 20-foot drifts. From Washington State down, everything was blocked. Well, not everything. Nellie Bly had traveled 20,000 miles and not missed a single connection. She was pretty much on schedule. She was scheduled to travel on the Central Pacific Railroad's overland route via Ogden, Utah, to Omaha, Nebraska, and then to Chicago. But it was all blocked, and it wasn't going to be cleared for at least a week, maybe longer. Nellie Bly was so close to winning the race around the world, and her paper was not going to let a snowstorm stop her. The answer was to go south. The New York world struck deals with the Southern Pacific and Santa Fe Railroads, one of the fastest locomotives in the former's fleet, was moved to the train depot in Oakland and made ready for Nellie Bly. So, when Nellie Bly set foot on American soil, she was cheered by those who had come to greet her. Charles Lowe, a reporter for the San Francisco Examiner, noted that Bly still had on the same dress she had been wearing when she had left New York, 68 days earlier. However, Bly had gotten a deep tan from spending so much time outdoors. After being checked for signs of smallpox, Bly was quickly taken to Oakland where she boarded a waiting train. On board was a stenographer and telegraph operator, and Bly dictated messages to her paper in New York. She was reportedly relieved to hear that her rival, Elizabeth Bislin, had been delayed. The train departed just after 9 a.m. on January 21st. The first stop was Merced, California, just north of Fresno. People gathered at the train station to cheer her, and a band struck up the song, My Nellie's Blue Eyes. Bly waved to the crowd from the platform in the rear of the car, and a delegation of about 50 people from the town came on board to greet the plucky American hero. She was given fruit and candy. It would be typical of her stops going forward. Bly and her newspaper understood that all of these stops were golden opportunities to sell more papers and enhance the legend of Nellie Bly, and they were not going to miss such opportunities. So, further south she went. At the Mojave Desert, she switched engines and tracks and headed east across the desert, there was no problem with snow in the Mojave Desert. Her route would take her to Albuquerque, then to La Junta, Colorado, then to Kansas City, and on to Chicago, all the while avoiding the great snowstorm in the north. The railroads paved the way for Bly, making sure everything was ready. They had the best men assigned to the task, made sure the tracks were cleared, and had emergency staff ready if necessary. Bly's train was also given right-of-way over other trains. To make all of this happen, the world was charged $1 per mile to get Bly to Chicago. The ultimate bill was $2,190. That total cost was more than the rest of the trip combined. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, hey, didn't the New York world pledge not to do this sort of thing? There weren't supposed to be special trains or ships. Well, yes, they did make that pledge, but in the face of failure, they blinked. Now, they argue that Bly was only doing these things due to the regular routes being blocked, which was true. But in the end, no one really cared. In reality, everyone wanted Nellie Bly to win. 
The trip through the West was filled with some great moments. At one point, the engineer of the train invited Bly to the cab and even let her operate the throttle, which thrilled her. In New Mexico, there was almost a disaster. Bly's train was unscheduled, so repair crews were not expecting it. At one location, some men were repairing a bridge over a ravine. The bridge was held up only by jack screws, without the girders that normally support it. Hearing the train approaching, the workers tried to get it to stop, but they were unsuccessful. Instead, the train roared over the weakened bridge at 50 miles per hour. It held up. Of course, Nellie Bly would make the incident more dramatic than it was, saying the bridge collapsed in the train's wake, which, by the way, was a scene straight out of Around the World in 80 Days. No matter, no one would dispute the dramatic version she spun. At every stop, there was a celebration for Nellie Bly. In Topeka, over a thousand people gathered for her arrival. Wreaths and flowers and gifts filled her train car. As you can imagine, the newspapers were going nuts over the story, and reporters joined the train at every stop to cover Bly's cross-country ride. Bly reportedly was reinvigorated by the trip across America. The people, the reporters, and the celebrations gave her a jolt of energy. Not a surprise since she loved the spotlight. She found the attention intoxicating. She was, after all, the story. Nellie Bly, American hero. Bly's train would reach Chicago at 7.05 a.m. on Friday, January 23rd. The run from Oakland had taken 69 hours. In Chicago, Bly would be able to relax for a bit, as her train wasn't scheduled to leave until the next day. Of course, that didn't stop her from doing more PR. She charmed the Chicago Press Club, and at the Chicago Board of Trade, trading stopped entirely as the traders all cheered Bly when it was announced she was in attendance. The next morning, Bly went to Union Station for her final train, which at this point was a regularly scheduled run on the Pennsylvania Railroad to New York. Throngs of people, reporters, politicians, and fans were there to see her off. She left Chicago at 10.30 a.m. on January 24th. Bly was given exclusive use of the rear parlor car. A couple of side notes. At this time, Bly received a note from Mr. and Mrs. Jules Verne, offering her their best wishes. Also, when asked about Elizabeth Bislin, Bly had this to say, quote, I know nothing of her plans, and I care very little about it, end quote. The crowds only got larger as Bly headed east. They were bigger than presidential visits, noted more than one newspaper. At every stop, police were on hand to control the masses. Nellie Bly reached Pittsburgh, her hometown, on January 25th, just before 3 a.m. There she was greeted by relatives and friends, including old newspaper colleagues. Bly was reportedly overwhelmed by it all and cried. After Pittsburgh, it was on to Philadelphia, where 5,000 people were waiting for her. Throngs of adoring fans swarmed the train, and even the police couldn't stop them. Still, in all the chaos, it was here that Bly was met by her mother, Mary Jane Cochran. Once the train departed Philadelphia, the end was near, New York City. Well, really, Jersey City, which is just across the Hudson River from New York City. Anyhow, at the Jersey City train station, 15,000 people had gathered to welcome their hero home. Nellie Bly stepped off the train at 3.54 p.m. and 44 seconds on January 25th. Her round-the-world venture had taken 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds. The moment was greeted by a 10-cannon salute, courtesy of a local pyrotechnics company. Speeches were made, gifts presented, and then Bly took a carriage ride to the world's offices. Along the way, crowds lined the piers and streets. When Bly went into the world's office, she turned and waved to the crowd, saying, quote, I am so glad to be home again, end quote. Nellie Bly had done it. She was home besting Phileas Fogg around the world, as well as Elizabeth Bislin and Cosmopolitan. Speaking of Bislin, I want to catch up with her before we talk about the crazy aftermath of Nellie Bly's journey. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Elizabeth Bislin left Ireland on January 19th, but she would run into terrible weather, including a hurricane in the North Atlantic. One ship reported a 100-foot-high wave. Another had 30 men washed overboard during a storm, most of them being lost at sea. In Ireland, ships came into port with six inches of ice coating the vessel. Due to the rough weather, Bislin's ship, Bothnia, would not arrive in New York until January 30th, 1890. As you can imagine, it had been a horrible voyage. Bislin had been seasick the entire time. There was no way she could have bested Bly. Instead, Elizabeth Bislin was second. She hit the pier around 1.30 p.m., her trip had taken 76 days, 16 hours, and 10 minutes, roughly. She was disappointed, but still, it was an amazing accomplishment. Hundreds of people were waiting for her when she arrived. A nice consolation prize, but nothing like the hero's welcome that had been waiting for Nellie Bly. As a note, the original ship that Bislin was supposed to be on, La Champagne, had been slow crossing the Atlantic due to the storms. She would not arrive in New York until January 27th, two days later than Bly. So even if Bislin had made her connections, she would have still lost the competition with Nellie Bly. So, Nellie Bly had won the race around the world. She had defeated Phileas Fogg and Elizabeth Bislin. She was, figuratively, at the top of the world. Word of Bly's achievement was broadcast around the globe. The next day, the world would print more than 280,000 copies of its paper, a record for the Sunday edition. At four cents, it sold out right away and was reportedly being resold for ten times that price to people who wanted a collector's item. Over at Cosmopolitan, John Brisbane Walker sent a basket of rare roses to Bly, gracefully conceding his defeat. In France, Jules Verne reportedly said, Bravo, three times on hearing of her success. His wife, Honorine, who had taken to Bly, broke out a vintage bottle of wine and toasted her. By the way, Bly's trip spurred renewed interest in Verne's around the world in 80 days. Ten new editions would be issued to meet the demand. In the United States, Americans cheered their new hero. Babies were named after Nellie, not to mention horses and dogs and cats and chickens. The Pennsylvania Railroad named their fastest train after her. It would run from New York to Atlantic City until 1961. Songs were even written about her journey, such as Globetrotting Nellie Bly. At the New York World, whose circulation had increased by more than 10% due to the interest in Nellie Bly, the completion of her journey brought the end of the contest. Almost one million coupons had been sent in, guessing the arrival time of Bly. The winner was Mr. F.W. Stevens of New York City. Mr. Stevens said that he would take the free trip to Europe himself and pay for his wife. And since we love to make money off of things, Nellie Bly would become an industry. Merchandise of all kinds would come out with Bly's likeness or endorsement, including caps, dresses, gloves, notebooks, tables, globes, stationery, lamps, and more. Round the World with Nellie Bly, a board game, was hugely popular. Players moved around a brightly colored board, recreating Bly's trip. They could run into icebergs or get stranded on a raft, or they could collide with another ship. You could even get attacked by bandits or get snowbound in the mountains. 
Nellie Bly was arguably the most famous woman in America. Now, before we take a look at the rest of the career and life of Nellie Bly, I do want to wrap up the story of Elizabeth Bisland, as she was an important part of this story. Bisland had never really taken to the race like Nellie Bly. She had no daily newspaper to promote her, did not really promote herself, and in the end, while she wanted to win, she treated the round the world competition as more of a fascinating trip than a race. She wrote a book about her journey titled A Flying Trip Around the World. It is more of a literary piece, downplaying the adventures of the affair, a sharp contrast to Bly. Bislin would marry an attorney in 1891 and continue to write articles for various papers, as well as publish several books. Her round-the-world voyage had given her a love for travel, and she would partake whenever possible. Bislin's husband would get sick around 1910. His health, both physical and mental, would deteriorate over the next decade, and he would die in 1919. During her husband's illness, and after his death, Bislin would battle depression. To occupy herself, she would devote herself to charity work, often promoting causes in support of working women. In 1927, Bislin would publish her first book in 17 years, a collection of essays. It would be her last. She would die in 1929 at the age of 67 of pneumonia. She was buried in Woodland Cemetery in the Bronx next to her husband. She had, in her own right, been an extraordinary woman. And while she and Nellie Bly were very different people, they each shared some common experiences and passions. They both had come from struggling families and understood the difficulty of being a woman depending on others. They had both supported women's causes and had been successful in fields that were traditionally dominated by men. So that is it for Elizabeth Bislin. Back to Nellie Bly. As we said, Nellie Bly was quite possibly the most famous woman in America in early 1890. She had many options going forward, and you would think her newspaper would embrace her star and find a mutually beneficial way to continue their relationship. However, that was not the case. Bly had returned home expecting some sort of reward for her success. She had, after all, made the newspaper a ton of money. Instead, she had gotten nothing. There was no bonus, and she was still being paid a substandard wage compared to her male counterparts. Bly did not hide her bitterness, saying, quote, The world never even said thank you to me after my return. End quote. You may ask, what caused the fractured relationship between Bly and her newspaper? Was it just them being cheap and refusing to reward Bly? Well, perhaps that was part of it. But another likely reason went back to events that occurred prior to Bly's round-the-world journey. The world was now embroiled in a libel lawsuit, a suit brought against the paper due to a story that Bly had written. And when the paper asked Bly to testify on behalf of the world, she declined. It left everyone angry with each other. And while the world had a standing offer for Bly to return to the paper, her pride would not let her go back after what she felt was shabby treatment. But we are getting ahead of ourselves a bit here. So, with Nellie Bly basking in the glow of her fame and no financial windfall coming from the newspaper, she decided that it was time to make some cash while the opportunity presented itself. Never one to just sit around and do nothing, Bly decided to strike quickly, and just a few weeks after returning to New York, she began a 40-city lecture tour of the United States. The lecture tour was a success, at first. While not a professional speaker, Bly knew how to tell a story, and people appreciated her. She was a poor, hard-working young woman who had made good. She was the quintessential American success story. Some thought it was crass of her for capitalizing on her success in such a fashion, but most didn't begrudge her the opportunity. However, Nellie Bly would find that the shine on her star was going to wear off rather quickly. No longer was she in the paper every day, and as the weeks passed, interest in her lecture tour began to wane. She would even cut the tour short after having a falling out with her manager. 
In reality, some of the problem lay with the overload of Nellie Bly mania. It's only natural that sentiment turn against someone or something that gets so popular. Also, Bly was no longer being promoted in the paper every day, and there were no articles about her or by her. The lecture tour was her own affair, and the paper was not about to help promote it. With the conclusion of her lecture tour, Bly would need to plot out her future. She could not go back to the undercover reporting she had done prior to her journey. That would be difficult, as she was one of the most recognizable women in America. It would be like George Clooney trying to pass himself off as the local garbage man. People would figure it out pretty quick that something was amiss. The first thing she did after her lecture tour was to write a book about her journey. Around the World in 72 Days would come out that summer, and it would sell 10,000 copies in the first month, at 50 cents apiece, which was a great success. P.S. You can read Bly's book, as well as Elizabeth Bislin's, online. I have put a link to both on our website, explorespodcast.com. So, Bly had done her lecture tour and published her book. What was next? As noted earlier, the New York world had a standing offer for Bly to return to the paper. However, it just wasn't going to happen. Bly felt underappreciated by the world, and frankly, she had other, more lucrative opportunities before her. Instead, Bly signed a contract to write serial fiction for the weekly magazine, The New York Family Story Paper. The magazine was billed as the largest family paper published in the world. The salary was enormous, $10,000 for the first year and $15,000 per year for two more years. One source said that it made her the highest salaried woman in the United States. The problem was that Bly didn't really know how to write serial fiction. She had written a mystery novel a couple years earlier, but it had not been a success, critically or financially. Regarding of this new gig, none of the work Bly did for the New York Family Story Paper has survived, so we really don't know anything about the quality of it. However, that she never received an offer to write another novel probably tells you that it wasn't anything special. Still, it would provide her with financial security. And that was important to her, as Bly's brother had died at this time, leaving a wife and two children. Bly would take it upon herself to support them, as well as her mother. In the fall of 1890, Bly decided to leave New York City. She moved about 25 miles away to White Plains, where she rented a farmhouse. The idea was that she would escape the crush of the city and focus on writing. Unfortunately for Bly, she had an accident and was injured. We don't know the exact nature of the injury, but it left her bedridden for an extended period, and she would have to use crutches to get around. All of this led to Nellie Bly falling into a bit of a funk. Think about it. She was away from New York, the job, her friends, the bustle of the city, all the things she was accustomed to. And she was writing for money now, not passion. And then she was laid up by an injury, something terrible for a person who was normally so active. And let us not forget the slide from fame. For several months, Nellie Bly had been the most popular and sought-after person in America. Now she was old news. For Bly, the moment in the spotlight had been exhilarating and intoxicating. But now Nellie Bly was no longer the story. The spotlight had passed her by. As a result, Bly fell into a depression. For more than a year, she would write almost nothing as she struggled with her mental and physical health. In 1893, the New York world approached Bly about returning to the paper, which had seen its sales drop since her departure. Eager to get back into what she knew, she accepted the job. As noted, Bly was done with undercover investigative journalism. Instead, she focused on big stories and interviews with celebrities. But in a lot of ways, the magic was gone. She had once been the most popular woman in America, and doing interviews seemed like a letdown. And then, in 1895, Bly met Mr. Robert Seaman, the 73-year-old owner of Ironclad Manufacturing in Brooklyn, a company valued at $5 million. 
The two would marry later that year, and Bly would retire from reporting. As with her previous job as a journalist, Nellie Bly would dive into her husband's business. Unfortunately, Robert Seaman would die in 1904. He was struck by a horse while crossing the street, and he died of heart disease brought on by his injuries. But Bly would continue to run the company. With his death, she became the only woman in the country managing such a large business, and she was reportedly quite good at it. She had 25 patents filed under her name, and the company had sales of more than $1 million annually. However, Bly was not a finances person, and she let others run that side of the business. The result was a disaster when it was discovered that her employees had embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from the company. Bly would be forced to declare bankruptcy, and she was sued by her creditors. To avoid losing all of her money, she transferred what she could overseas. Then, on October 1, 1914, she left New York to avoid her growing legal issues. In Europe, where the war was just engulfing the continent, Bly would live in Vienna with a friend named Oscar Bondi. She would return to writing, penning dispatches for William Randolph Hearst's evening journal about the Great War. But mostly she focused on charitable endeavors, helping out women and children whose lives were disrupted by the conflict. By 1919, all the charges against Bly were cleared, and she was free to return to America. However, she was nearly broke. Unfortunately, her money issues had strained her relationship with her family, including her mother. Back in New York City, Bly, who was now 55 years old, took a job writing for the Evening Journal. The pay was $100 a week. However, it is here that she seems to have reconnected with writing. No, she did not go undercover like she had 30 years earlier, but she found things that she was passionate about. In her columns, she would offer career and marital advice for women. Also, she would promote charities and hospitals that helped the poor and the displaced. She began a campaign against capital punishment and fought for women's rights. She often tried to help struggling men and women, finding them jobs through her column. She even became a sort of adoption agency, fostering abandoned babies as she tried to find homes for them. There were toy drives and clothing drives, things to help those in need. Always a hard worker, Nellie Bly continued to work 12- and 14-hour days even at this stage of her life and perhaps all of it finally caught up with her. In January of 1922, Bly caught a cold, which turned to pneumonia. Nellie Bly would die on January 27, 1922. She was 57 years old. She would be buried in Woodland Cemetery, the same cemetery that her rival, Elizabeth Bislin, would be buried in a few years later. So that is it, the life of Elizabeth Jane Cochran, a.k.a. Nellie Bly. A few things I want to mention before we wrap up today. First, we had a round-the-world trip in this series, and we went to a lot of places. I am sure that I butchered some pronunciations of places along the way. My apologies. Second, Nellie Bly's trip around the world set a record at the time. However, George Francis Train, an American businessman, would break the record just a few months later. Train, by the way, had circumnavigated the globe in 1870 and was reportedly part of the inspiration for the fictitious Phileas Fogg. Third, Bly would prove to be an enduring figure in the world of journalism, as well as popular culture. In all honesty, her work as an undercover journalist was far more important than her trip around the world. Her expose on Blackwell's Island was groundbreaking, so much so that the story of Bly going undercover was made into a film in 2015. And there have been other movies and television shows and books inspired by Nellie Bly and her reporting. Even today, the New York Press Club presents the Nellie Bly Cub Reporter Award, acknowledging the journalistic efforts by a young reporter. But probably the most important and lasting thing about Nellie Bly was that her reporting would inspire a new generation of female journalists, women not content to cover the theater or society pages. 
She would be a role model for women and a vocal supporter for women, the poor, and those who had no voice. That is not a bad legacy. So that is it, Nellie Bly and the race around the world. It is different than what we've done in the past, but I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, and we will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.